We are finishing our study in James. So we are in James chapter 5 today. We'll look at the entire chapter. James chapter 5. This is God's word. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those, those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your true and living word. We are, uh, we are grateful that, that your word dis- is described as, a, as this double-edged sword that it will not miss its mark, it will cut where it needs to cut, and it will, uh, it will do that um, for our own good. And so I pray that we would have ears to hear uh, from your word today, that we would have minds to understand, and that we would have hearts to receive what it is that you have to show us uh, in James chapter 5 this morning. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we draw uh, our study of James to a close today, I want to just remind you of why James was written, uh, or why James has written this letter to the churches. 
First and foremost, James is a pastor, and he is concerned for the flock at large. And his main concern, as you've probably seen, has not been uh, on, on so much this right belief, like giving you just these great theological um, ideas and truths, like, 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 say, the Apostle Paul does. Now, what James has been focused on is right living. Because as James argues in James chapter 2 of his letter, if your if you're right believing doesn't change your living, then what you are believing is useless. You can't say, I have faith apart from the works that prove that you do have this faith that you say you have. That's not Christianity. So going back to James chapter 1, verse 23, where James compares looking into the word of God uh, like, looking, like, like it's like looking into a, a mirror. And the mirror reflects back to you what is true. So there's no hiding from a mirror. It is revealing everything about you that is true. So James appropriately closes by using this method to get, to get us to look, look one more time into the mirror of God's word so that we can see what it shows us there. And he does this by saying three things that the mirror reveals about true Christianity. True Christianity. And I, and I use the word true on Christianity for a purpose because there are a lot of people, especially in the context of the southern United States, who would say that they are a Christian. And that word has lost its meaning in a lot of ways because those who say they are Christians are not truly Christians. So James reveals to us some things that are true about true Christians. One, there's three here. One, true Christians steward well. Two, true Christians suffer well. And then here we go, one more S. This is amazing. True Christians serve well. The true Christians steward well, they suffer well, and they serve well. And if you are a true Christian, your life will reflect these particular things. They can't be absent from your life. So number one, true Christians steward well. So these first six verses in James chapter 5 have been deba debated as to whether we understand them as as James uh, actually addressing uh, rich people within the churches, or if he's actually addressing those who are outside the churches, and then he's just kind of using them as an example so that the churches can kind of learn from the mistakes of those outside the church, which happens at times, and that's a lot of what the prophets did. They would say, look at how the world is living. This is how, this is how God has called you to live. Don't follow the ways of the world. But I think, actually, that, that he's doing both. I think, I think there are rich Christians within the church that, that James is addresses, addressing, but there's also poor and middle-class Christians as well. I think it's, it's a mixture, it's a combination. Because whether we are, are rich or, or poor, money tends to be something we are all tempted to use wrongly. The problem here in verses 1 through 6 is not that the rich have a lot of money. That's okay. You can have a lot of money. But it's that they don't steward it well. In, in verse 1, James uh, commands these rich 
to weep and howl. Why? Because they have miseries that are coming upon them based upon how they have used their wealth. There's a future judgment waiting for them, all because of their poor use of their money and resources. James illustrates it this way in verses 2 through 3. He says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So what James illustrates here is how the rich have used their wealth. And what we see is that they, they, don't, they don't give it away freely, but rather they have inappropriately hoarded their wealth. Which reminds us of Jesus' parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, where a very rich man who has, who has much uh, wonders what he should do with the excess wealth he has acquired. He has all of this, all of this grain that he just is just overflowing. His, his barns that he currently have are literally busting open because he has so much wealth. And so instead of giving his money away or giving his resources away, his solution is to tear down the barns he already has, probably perfectly good barns, tear down the barns he already has to build larger ones so that he can store this excess wealth. Not to give away, but to keep, to hoard. To which God responds, God responds in Luke 12, 20-21. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So James is saying to the rich here, you are fools. You are fools. You haven't been good stewards of what God has clearly blessed you with, and the way I know that is the rotting riches that sit in your garage the moth-eaten clothes that currently hang in your closets that you have either never worn or rarely worn. The corroded gold and silver that sits in your bank account that goes unused. And this isn't just an observation that James is making. He's not just saying, look at this and, and turn from your ways. What James is doing here is an indictment against them in their case on Judgment Day, when they stand before God, the judge. It's an indictment. James is saying to them, you, because of these things, you are guilty. And this is why James tells them to weep and howl. They are in trouble. Because they will stand guilty before God, because instead of laying up their treasures in heaven and being rich toward him, they laid up treasures for themselves on earth, where, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, moth and rust destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, the theologian Abraham Kuyper 
he said this. He says, uh, he said, what the Bible calls mammon is really money plus Satan. He says money is, is power in hand, but when what's in the hand determines what's in the heart, then what's really drawing us is no longer money but mammon. And no one can be subject to God and mammon. In other words, when money has become this for you, when it has become more than just something that you use to provide for you and your family and to give away generously, when, when money has become this for you, it is no longer understood as, as serving you and the Lord, but you serving it. You have now become a slave to your wealth. And it controls you. So the way you use your wealth is a true test, Jesus says, of what is in your heart. It's something that can be seen. Look at what James says about the rich in our text in verses 4 through 6. Very visible visible activities that are happening. James isn't just giving you this, this uh, uh, illustration or this illusion for you to think about something else. This is actually happening within the church. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Or that word, that word is translated actually Lord of armies. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So these rich people here have allowed their wealth to so consume their hearts that they readily invoke injustice upon those that are in their employment. And, and during this time, a, a day laborer was 100% um, dependent upon that day's wages. They needed that day's wages that particular day or else they were going to starve to death them and their family. So what's happening here is that the rich here are withholding those wages from those day laborers. They are not giving them what they deserve. And James says that you have actually murdered people because of this. People have actually died because you have been unjust. So they actively take advantage of the poor. And James says the only thing that they have accomplished by doing this, they think they're, they're, they're making more money, which they are. But James says, in reality, what you have actually done is you have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter, which is the day of the Lord, when they will stand guilty before God. Now, before you start thinking about other people this may apply to, because I know that's always my default. I'm like, man, so-and-so really needs to hear this. Before you start doing that, I want you to be honest. Don't lie. And ask yourself whether anything in you is inherently valuable. In your driveway or your garage, in your bank account, or even in the corners of your heart. Do you have a better grasp of your budget than you do the gospel? 
Is your, is your financial IQ greater than your biblical IQ? Do you find yourself more concerned with money than people? James is saying you will not be rewarded for that on the last day. You, God will not say, well done, good and faithful servant. You kept a pristine budget. He will not say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have made some great investments in the right companies and made a lot of money. Now, in fact, the wealth that you have consumed, James says, could very likely be presented as exhibit A at your trial. It will be there to condemn you, not help you. So our response to this is quite simple. Live generously. Give away more than you keep. Tim Keller has said, if you can't feel your giving, which means if you, can't, if you don't have to give up something uh, to give, then you are probably not giving enough. And we live this way because God has been generous to us. This is a gospel response because we, we are called to be generous towards others because God has been generous towards us. And this just proves that the gospel does change everything, including our finances. Well, that's the first thing the mirror reveals. The second thing the mirror, the mirror reveals about true Christianity is that true Christians suffer well. So none of us uh, go through this life untouched by suffering. We are either currently in suffering, so some of you are currently in suffering, or we are about to go into suffering, whether we know it or not, or we are coming out of suffering. So suffering is, co is constantly happening in that cycle. So the suffering that the church is experiencing here in James is a specific type of suffering because they are suffering due in part to the oppression that they are feeling from the rich. So James turns his attention to these brothers and sisters who are actually feeling this suffering, who are being treated unjustly. They are the ones not being given what they're owed, but instead of revolution and violence against their oppressors, which would be a natural response to do, to rise up and, and, to, and to fight against those who are, who are treating us unkindly and killing our families. Instead of doing that, James says in verse 7, be patient. Be patient, brothers and sisters. And that's a hard exhortation to hear because we have a hard time hearing those words. We don't like... We don't like it when we see something that we, that we want or we see something that, that we want done and we, want it to ha we wanted it to happen yesterday. We want it to happen immediately. We think things should happen right when, uh, right when a wrong has happened. We think justice should be invoked. And then when someone gives us the counsel, hey, just be patient. We don't like it. But James doesn't give an empty be patient here. He's not just trying to cool our emotions here and to say, hey, look, look it'll get better, it'll get better. James's, James's uh, exhortation here is, is framed in light of the gospel, specifically the part of the gospel that says, Jesus will return to make all things new. 
this is James's framework. This is the framework in which he is saying, be patient, be patient, therefore, he says, until the coming of the Lord. How? How can we be patient when we're being oppressed or how can we be patient when someone we love is sick or dying or we're just going through a really hard financial time or, 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 or decision making and things like that? How can we be patient? How does this help? Well, for that, we have to look back at verses 4 through 5 to just remind us of how we can do this. And James says to the rich, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, and the day of slaughter, the day of the Lord, is coming. So God has heard the cries of those who suffer. Even though he may not be acting in the way that you want him to act or acting in the time frame that you want him to act, he hears the cries of those who suffer. And the coming of the Lord is the answer. And the coming of the Lord will be a global and cataclysmic event because it will herald the judgment of all sin and the writings of all wrongs. It is the day of slaughter that James warns the rich about. So this is not a call to, be, to, to patience that is empty uh, without an end in sight. It is, it is patience that has a defined period of time. So knowing the end of something will, uh, will come gives us strength to endure the suffering that we might currently be sitting in. So a lot of you know we were in Washington, D.C. last week, and Ivy, our 11-week-old, got, got really sick. Uh, we didn't know what was going on at first, and we, we knew that she was in an extreme amount of pain and very uncomfortable, and so we had to watch this go. Uh, and it was hard to watch. It was really hard to watch your little baby suffer. But when this fantastic team of doctors was, was able to say to us and diagnose what was going on with her and to begin to treat her with the medicine that she needed and then to say to us, um, once, these, once the medicine begins to get into her system and work, she'll be better within 48 hours. Confidence. She'll be better within 48. And she was. But we knew, even in that moment, even though she was still suffering, even though she was still in pain, even though we were suffering, we knew, we knew then that we could endure the waiting. We just had to be patient. There was nothing that we could do to, to, to quicken it. We just had to be patient. And this is the same for James's readers, and that includes us. Knowing the end with confidence makes it possible to bear something otherwise un. And the church is called on to look at Christ during these times. And be patient that he will return and that your suffering will eventually come to an end. Some of you may have to suffer your entire life. A chronic suffering. But you know what? The end will, the end will come and you will suffer no longer. Eventually you will be healed. Eventually your suffering will be relieved. Be patient and look to Christ. So not only does James give us the reason we can be patient in our suffering, he also tells us how to be patient in our suffering. Because patience, uh, being patient is not passive. So we're not just like, I'm patient and I'm just going to sit here and wait. So looking at the illustration of the farmer in verse 7, we know that the farmer is not inactive as he awaits the harvest. 
He's not just sitting there twiddling his thumbs and going, man, I hope this stuff grows. No, the farmer is active in his patience. He's doing everything that he can to keep his harvest healthy through watering and fertilizing and whatever else it takes to keep the harvest healthy, to keep it going in the right direction. In, in the same way, the Christian is not to be inactive as they await the coming of Christ. Patience is active for the true Christian in two ways. First, in verse 8, James tells us to stand firm or establish your hearts, it might say in your translation, or to be steadfast. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, he says, Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now remember, none of us will escape this life without suffering. So what are you doing now to buttress your faith in the meantime? Preparing for the suffering to come. What are you doing if you are in that suffering? What are you doing in the waiting? What are you doing as God calls you to be patient in your suffering? What are you doing? Are you complaining? Are you getting angry? Are you, are you bitter at other people? What are you doing in the midst of the waiting and in the enduring? God calls you to look to Christ. God calls you to look to the promises that one day all of your suffering will be removed. The second thing James says Christians uh, uh, says that, that Christian patience looks like is, is not to grumble against one another in verse 9, which is unusual. Oh, you wouldn't think, I wouldn't think to say that, but, but, but even as I began to kind of think about that, it is very easy when you are under the weight of suffering and injustice, and we see this in our culture currently, to blame others and even to turn against your own brothers and sisters in the church when you are suffering. And this could be due in part to your own jealousy of other people's lives. We look at Instagram and we think, man, they, they just look like they have it all together. Like everything's going right for them. Everything looks perfect for them. They never have any hardships. They always have what they need and even more. Let me just tell you right now with Instagram, that is all a lie. There, it is all a lie. Okay? You can get on Instagram. It's fine. I have Instagram. I'm not telling you to, to delete it. But, you know, just, just watch it with that lens. You have no idea what suffering people are going through as they post these pretty pictures and say these nice things. So we might look at other people and say, well, they don't suffer the way that I suffer. Or, or we might say, that person doesn't understand my situation, and so I'm going to get angry at them because they're not responding in the way that I want them to respond, even though I haven't told them anything about my particular situation. And then you begin to grumble against them and maybe even begin to distance yourself from them and, and maybe even begin to distance yourself from the church. Even in verse 12, James uh, pleads for, again, about concerning our speech, that even our speech towards one another should be genuine. That our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Because those things can twist and turn very quickly when we are under the weight of suffering. Because James knows the temptation to grumble. He knows the temptation to be snarky on Facebook. He knows the temptation to distance yourself a a from being present with 
um, the body of believers when the heat has been turned up in your life. And the reason he is able to say all of these things with confidence and they not come across as just come some trite, you know, kind of um, good sayings for you to kind of make you feel better during your suffering. The reason why James is able to say this is found in verse 9 and verse 11. One, God is near. And two, God is compassionate and merciful toward you. If you are a follower of Jesus, that is your relationship with the Father. That, that God is near to you right now in your moment of suffering. He is near to you. And what continues to be true is that he is compassionate towards you and merciful towards you. That never stops. So God is our impelling framework to live rightly in every situation. And we can be confident in this because of James's examples. He, he says, look, this is not just me talking that this will eventually happen. This has already happened. Look at the prophets. Look at Job. Look at Job's story. He, he endured faithfully before us, um, so much so that, that, that Job can speak words like he does in Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, after he goes through probably the worst suffering that anybody could ever experience apart from Jesus. Losing his, lo- losing his wealth, losing his power and his status, losing all of his, all of his kids, just about. Losing his wife. I mean, everything that you could possibly think about going wrong happened to Job. And in Job 19, he's able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. So looking forward to the coming of Christ. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. That's how you respond. So finally, James calls on his brothers and sisters to serve the Lord well and to serve each other well. The final look in the mirror here in verses 13 through 20. Now it's hard to get around the the first act of service that James calls the church to in verses 13 through 18 because he repeats the word, over and over and over again. Seven times he brings up prayer in these six verses. That's a lot. So he describes a a range of circumstances that that believers might find themselves in. So uh, if you're suffering, if you're happy, if you're sick, and in every circumstance, the response is to pray. Pastor H.B. Charles says in his little book, It Happens After Prayer, He says, there is only one reliable option for responding to the things that you would change if you could, but tried and you cannot. You ought to pray about these things. The first instance James says to pray is in verse 13. He asks the question, is anyone among you suffering? To which we would say, yes, people are suffering amongst us. James's answer is, let them pray. And it's interesting that James's exhortation to the, sufferer, to the sufferer is praying because prayer seems like the obvious thing to do, doesn't it? But sadly, it, it isn't always the first thing we do, is it? So in your suffering, and if you're suffering now or you're, you're, you're entered into suffering and, or you're coming out of suffering, 
in your suffering, the first thing you should do is pray. Don't even talk to your spouse or best friend about it. Go to the Lord in prayer first. And don't just pray that God would remove you from the suffering. Don't let that be your prayer. I think that would be, uh, I think it's appropriate to pray that, but I think if that's your only prayer, you're wasting your time. And you're going to miss a lot of what God is showing you. So instead, pray that God would show you more of of himself in your suffering. Pray that you would draw closer to him and not further away. Pray that his glory would be made known through your suffering to a watching world. The Bible says that when you walk through the valley, the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. And the reason why you will fear no evil is because the Lord your God is with you. So you can trust that he will hear you when you pray to him. And all, the, all of this shows us simply that there's never a time when it is not good to pray. There's never a time when we go, we'll wait for prayer, or we'll do something a little bit different, and prayer will be our final, our final uh, kind of action. There's never a time that, that prayer is not the right answer. So think about your own situation, maybe this afternoon, meditate upon that, and bring it to God in prayer. The second instance James says to pray is in sickness. Specifically, he says uh, to call on the elders to come and, uh, and lay hands on this particular person and to pray for the one who is sick. And I'm not going to delve into that aspect of it because we don't have time, but this is a pretty common practice in the church. So if you are sick and you don't know what's going on or, 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 or you're, just, you're, constant, you're just being um, just inundated with this kind of suffering The Bible says here, James says here, you are to call on the elders to come and anoint you with oil and pray for you. So if that is ever your situation, do that, and we will come and pray for you. So it's a common practice. We we did it this weekend for a member of ours in the hospital right now. We prayed for her. So we should be praying for those who are sick sick. And James also goes a bit deeper here because he seems to be more concerned with what causes the sickness than the sickness itself. So he says in verse 15 here, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And in verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So James here is identifying sickness with sin and healing with repentance. Now, I want to be cautious here so that we don't assume that every time someone sneezes that they are in sin or have COVID, you know. So Sam Alberry is helpful here in his commentary on James. He says, in general, sickness is part and parcel of life in a broken and fallen world. We get sick because our world is broken because of the fall. It is part of the fallout of our collective rebellion against God, and in that sense, it is indiscriminate. We experience sickness because we live in a sinful world, and not necessarily because we have been particularly sinful. But, there are some occasions where sickness is the direct result of your sin. That it actually affects you uh, physically and mentally. We see this in the New Testament when Jesus 
warns the invalid man that he has just healed. In John chapter 5, verse 14, uh, Jesus said to them, See, you are well. Take notice of that. You have been healed. And then he says, Sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. And then Paul warns the church in Corinth concerning taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In 1 Corinthians 11, he writes to the church, he says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he goes on to say, That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have died. Because you have taken the supper in an unworthy manner. You have been unrepentant of your sins, and that has made you sick, and that has also killed some of you. When we hear the words, the wages of sin is death, that's not always, that, that does not always mean spiritual death. It does mean spiritual death. It always means spiritual death. But also it means physical death can happen as well. I've seen people physically die, or, or, or death comes upon them, specifically because of their sin. The wages of sin is death. But James says the solution to all of this is prayer. And all of us are involved in this sort of ministry toward one another. James says to confess your sins uh, to one another so that you might be healed. So this is not just the, the job of the pastors. James says we should confess our sins to each other and that we are to pray for one another. Sam Alberry is helpful here again as he says, repentance is a church family concern. We are all involved. We all have a responsibility to one another in this area. We need, and we need the kind of friendships where we can share our struggles. We need to have people to whom we can confess major and persistent sin, and we need to be humble enough to do so. So the second part of how we serve well is, is described in verses 19 through 20. Look there with me at those two verses. James closes with, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is a page ripped right out of Jesus' own life, isn't it? Since God is in the business of rescuing lost sheep, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 15, this is the reality. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And this is the same business that we are called to be employed in as well as the church. And it's another work that we are called to do together as the church. It's a call for the community to reclaim wayward brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the reality is, with this many people who, who come to this church every Sunday and with the amount of members that we have, we, we're all dealing with, uh, with lots of different things throughout our lives, things that come up, suffering that happens, 
things that, that, are, that, that are temptations for us to, to be pulled away from the faith, the reality is, is that some of us will wander. Some of us will. Some of us have already. And that's what James is implying here. The ways of this world can and will pull you away. Either you will be, either you will be wandering uh, from the truth or the truth will keep you from wandering. And James says when those brothers or sisters do wander, you and I are to go after them. You and I are to go on a search and rescue mission of our brothers and sisters. We're not just to let them just go. We are to chase after them and try and make an attempt at rescuing them. Because your brother or sister's wandering is not just their problem. It's yours as well. It's the burden that you take on. When you say, I, I want a covenant with this church, you are covenanting with these other brothers and sisters in Christ that says that you will take care of them spiritually. That if they wander off the straight and narrow, that you will chase after them and bring them back. And yeah, it, it'll be hard. If you've ever done it before, it will be awkward. You could possibly lose a friend over it. Paul helps us with this and uh, how he approaches. This is one of my favorite kind of pastoral verses that I go to often with how we are to approach different wanderers. Because not all wanderers are, 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 are murderers or, or like blatantly just openly sinning and cheating on their spouse or, or beating their children or doing things that would just be out in the open for all to see. Some of these things are subtle and quiet. Most of the time they're subtle and quiet. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle. I always translate that as some people need a good swift kick in the pants. Encourage the faint-hearted. There are people who are downcast, who are depressed, who are anxious, and they don't need a kick in the pants. They need you to come alongside them and help the weak. This might be those who are suffering from a deep, dark depression and they can't see the light and you are the one that goes in and says, there is light. There's, there's still hope. And then Paul says to be patient with all of them. And the end goal, James is saying here, is saving a person from an eter eternal death. And you know why you can, you can trust that that is what God has called us to and that that will work? You know why that is? It's because this has been done for you. You were the lost sheep that Jesus is talking about in this parable. You were, the, you were the sheep that Jesus came after and brought back into his fold. He rescued you, and he has covered your multitude of sins. And he is the one that enables you to live the true Christian life. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, 
thank you for these words. Help us, help us to live in this, this dark and broken world as true Christians. Help us to live as your salt and your light. Help us to be faithful to, to, not only, to not only go out into the world and live faithful lives, but also to live faithful lives within the church, to be generous towards one another, to pray for one another when we're sick or we're suffering, to, 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 call, to call out sin in each other's lives so that we might live lives that are, that are glorifying and honoring to you so that we can know again and again and again the love that you have for us as our Father in heaven through Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.